Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Press Row. Behind the scenes stories from the world of sports media. Press Row. Inside and interviews from around the sports world. Now, here's your host, Shona Siegel. Shona here in the Press Row. It is said that the world works in mysterious ways, bringing us together with people for strange reasons. And today's episode of the Press Row is a good example of that. I sit down and talk to somebody I met at a trade show of all places in Las Vegas. And uh, as you'll learn, I get to speak to somebody who played some time in Major League Baseball and now lives in my world of e-commerce and retail. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it as a really cool convergence of my world, sports and retail technology. So I hope you'll enjoy today's episode of In the Press Row. Welcome back in the press row. Jonah Siegel here in Seattle, a scorching sunny Thursday afternoon. Uh, Welcome back. Hope all is well. We are, uh, it's funny, you know, the world works in strange ways. And uh, sometimes you go to things, you attend events, and you meet cool people, and you just think that you were just meant to be there. And I was at a trade show in in Las Vegas. I go to several of them a year in, in the business that my day life takes me to. And this was a a speed dating event where you kind of got matched with people. And lo and behold, I got matched with today's guest. And I'm going to say that we've become friends. We we now speak at least once a week, if not more than that, and uh, share a passion, I would say, for sports, business, and family, three, three important things. And it's cool. I think it's really cool. And, and I think it's especially cool how how we met. And when I started the pod, I really wanted to talk to people in in sports media, and that's evolved. One of the one of the upsides of COVID is that it's evolved into just talking to cool people with great stories to tell. And and that's where we are today. So for those of you not watching on YouTube, those of you listening sitting across from me on the camera today via Zoom is Spencer Kaiboom. Spencer, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, I think you're right. It is funny how the world turns. And um, uh, I think I had what the 10-minute speed dating. And uh, uh, you asked me a ton of questions. I spoke uh, faster than I've ever spoke. And I think at the end, I said, I don't know what the hell this Jonah guy does, but I liked him. Um, and we kept in touch ever since, which has been pretty cool. So, so those of you who, who don't know now, I think I already butchered your last name here in the intro. It's it's Spencer Keyboom, correct? Yeah, Keyboom, Kaboom, Kaiboom, but yeah, Keyboom. All right. So for those of you following along, uh, unique distinction of being a retired former Major League Baseball catcher, played for your Washington Nationals, war number 64, I believe. Yep, number one in your heart, number 64 in your program. I love that you say that. Um, where did the 64 come from? Uh, that was the number given to me in spring training because I was running on the totem pole. <laughs> and how long did you play for the Nationals? Um, I played uh, eight and a half years professionally, all within the Nationals organization. Parts of three years uh, in the major leagues to accumulate, I would say, I guess just over a year of service time. Um, 2018, I was up there for 
all but four weeks, I believe, uh, of the season. And before that, before your professional career, you played some college ball at Clemson. Is that right? Yeah. Played uh, freshman, sophomore, junior year at Clemson. Um, and uh, after my career was done, which I'm sure we'll get into and, and what happened and how that all went about, um, um, I there was an article written back uh, with the was it Washington Post, and they said I had an Irish goodbye, which there was a there was a reasoning to it. Um, but um, yeah, I left after my junior year and graduated in 2020. Um, I actually went back to the uh, regional at Clemson and uh, got to shake the president's hand and like I uh, got to walk across without waiting in line, so to speak. So it was good. You have an incredible story, and that's why you're here today. Besides the fact that we became you know friends at this random event called shop talk in vegas and you know the fact that you're a former athlete former professional athlete i should say who's now living in the world of e-commerce um remarkable story that immediately i took to um tell us a little bit about yourself you're born in in mount pleasant south carolina you've got dual citizenship um both us and netherlands Got some yeah. family, some history in baseball. Just, you know, a couple words. Just give us a little bit of the Kaboom family story in, in a couple of words. Um, dad's, uh, we're first, technically first generation American on my dad's side. Um, and uh, my mom uh, is from Chicago. He met her in college. Um, my dad found himself over here in the uh, in the States or the U.S. as we'll call it here, probably most of the folks listening. But um, in the States... Um, at around 17 years old, um, he played baseball over in the Netherlands, which was essentially unheard of at the time. Um, and, uh, found his way over here and lived with the host family, ended up going to college, had a academic and a baseball scholarship and, uh, went to Eastern Illinois, uh, never played professionally, um, beyond, beyond college. And, uh, basically we grew up and I saw catcher's mitts down in the basement, uh, and, uh, Lo and behold, we're living in Georgia when it's all said and done at the age of four. We sign up for some baseball. Um, and uh, I think I was seven. Um, and we, was, we made another guy and I on the team made the all-star team for eight, eight U, whatever, eight and under. And we were both seven years old. And um, so you're not going to play shortstop or, you know, third base or whatever, like, you know, most of the guys would like you were the whole year on your other team. You have some bigger kids. And um, next thing you know, uh, nobody wanted to catch. And I'm like, well, I can catch my dad caught. Right. And so uh, from that point forward, it was uh, either the best or worst line I ever had in my entire life. Cause I never, uh, I really never went between the lines again, uh, full-time uh, for a position. And a bit of a strange question for you here. Hockey goalies are a bit of an oddball character. The ones that I know super nice, but they're a little bit quirky. Are baseball catchers kind of the same breed as well or, or not so much? I'm I know a couple of guys who play who have played and also play in the NHL. Um I don't know any goalies. Um my guess based off of what you said, that's probably a left-handed mid-relief pitcher uh okay. who's most comparable to the goalie. Okay. Um but catchers are more um there's a reason I think why you see these guys as managers. Um I, you know, you have the game's changing, unfortunately, which I have no problem going down that path and talking about that as well. But um, the catcher really is somebody who has to be prepared. 
um, you know, has a knowledge of what's going on at all times, taking, you know, looking in at the dugout in between every single pitch, um, calling the game, you know, trying to get on the same page with the pitcher, building a relationship with the entire staff uh, throughout the whole season and, be- and before. Um, really call it like the general of the field, hence why I think you see a lot of guys um, are – are, are, are become managers when it's all said and done if they stay in the game so from eight until what age? like at what age do you actually like at eight obviously you're not at some point in your career you actually do start calling a game right when does that happen um I was lucky I grew up on teams I mean I got to do it when I was little I really don't know how much I was like paying attention to it um but um, you really don't get into it until professional baseball. Um, like the art of calling a game, like why are you calling certain pitches? Even without the data behind it, like in the minor leagues, you don't have the data like you do in the major leagues. But um, why are you calling certain pitches? Like what do counts dictate? Um, like what's the situation of the game? How many runs are you up by or how many runs are you down by? What's the umpire doing? Um, all of those things are factors. What was the previous pitch? Where did it miss? What did the guy do before? What do you remember from like previous series uh, as well? So, I mean, there's a lot going on there. I mean, in its shortest, you know, sentiment, I guess, is like, you know, if you have a 2-2 count and you got a runner on first base with no out or one out, what's the point of really throwing a breaking ball when you could throw a changeup or a fastball to try to jam them to roll into a double play? It's it's not as much of a swing-miss account. It's more of like we want contact in order to uh, put the ball in play and 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 roll two. Um, and the same thing can be applicable with first and second at the, even if the guy gets a weak single, but you're not doing that at, you know, 13, 14 years old. No, no, you're, you're playing <laughs> and you, you got to play. Right. I mean, and, uh, I think a lot of the experiences you have, uh, at that age, um, is, does make you into, you know, kind of the person, the young adult, I would say definitely for sure. And then you have more experiences that, that, you know, shape and mold you into who you are. And at what point of your career did it occur to you that maybe you could go to college and play? Um, so my dad stopped coaching me. He didn't coach me at 11. He coached me at 10, didn't coach me at 11, coached me at 12. And this is all travel baseball. I played, started playing travel ball at, at 10, um, which I think they play now at like probably Four. five or something. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> it's crazy. Um but we're East Cobb, just north of Atlanta, Marietta area, Alpharetta, Roswell, you name it. And this is a hotbed for baseball. I mean, I would put the guys that come out of here in baseball. Uh, I mean, it's if it's not in the top three, it's top five locations in the United States um, uh, for, for baseball to come out of. Um, the high school fields I played on were nicer than most of the minor league fields uh, that I played on until double A. Um, and, and, you know, I would say... I was fortunate, you know, at East Cobb, which used to be the powerhouse back in the day, was they have like a number one team, a number two team, a number three team, and then kind of like go somewhere else or go play rec ball, I guess, right? And um, I played on the number one team at 13 and 14. 15, I didn't make it, um, which was pretty devastating for myself. But I had a coach who called a number two team or three team. I don't even know what it was. It doesn't matter. Um, But he let me be me and just let me play. And would, you know, ask me questions and want to know, but that really, it was an awkward time in my life. I mean, I'm 15, like there's a lot of stuff going on, right? You got guys who are men and you got guys who are boys and 
like I didn't even have, I don't even think I had armpit hair at that time. Right. So like, I was like kind of smaller and awkward and, um, but he let me be me and I began maturing and, and things started happening. And that was a really big year for me because I got so many reps and I got to fail, but I got to fail being myself, which was, which was huge. And then I got to learn off of that and make it, make it my own. I would take input, but make it my own. Um, 16 played on the number one team again, but didn't play as much. 17 played on uh, the number one team. And the other catcher there was uh, going to Georgia Tech. He was a year older than me. Um, and we played like, I think, we played high school baseball, uh, which we won state when I was a freshman uh, in like class. I don't even know what it was. It was 5A at the time, which was the largest. Um, I think they have 7A now, uh, which that's where the high school is now, 7A. But um, we at 17 this catcher he was going to george tech i hadn't committed anywhere yet and um i was getting some looks from some smaller schools nothing like clemson and um basically show up that summer and i played i caught 54 i think out of 62 games that summer he it just it was i just somehow made this big jump um it wasn't like i heard something or thought of something just something had happened i don't know if it's called click I don't like that term because that's not real, but, um, but either way I was playing pretty much every game. I wasn't even recruited by Georgia tech until it was, I already committed to Clemson and uh, Georgia didn't even look at me. Um, and then went to some showcase thing, played like four games. It was right after the season at 17 and got a call from Clemson. They're like, Hey, we would love for you to come to school here. I had, I'd gone on like an, I went on like this little unofficial visit, thought the football game was cool, but had no idea the history of the university and really what it all entailed, uh, which I got lucky uh, because of how much history is there um, and wound up going there at 18 years old and um, found myself in another battle to play, play, you know, start on the field again. The year you didn't make it when you were 15, was it a hitting issue, a fielding issue or both? I think it was just an overall issue. I mean, I didn't have power. Um, I didn't have um, – my arm was was good. It was not great uh, at that time either, which my arm ended up, I think, being my strongest attribute at the end of, uh, throughout my career. Um, and, I mean, I'm I was, I'm slow. I mean, I'm not fast. Like, we're not stealing bags, like, you know, bases <laughs> here. So, um, it was – I didn't really bring that, like, it factor. And I didn't really have, I think, that – mentality at that moment in time either where I was good and I'd had some things like not handed to me but I just was playing and I'd play and I'd play and the thing was at 14 the year before I kind of got a good shock where I wasn't playing all the time and then it was a bigger shock when I didn't make the team at 15 uh, but those were two great things that happened to me because it actually I'm not trying to jump ahead but it actually segued me into uh, uh, when I was a freshman in college to kind of prepare what was like what was about to come, I guess, you know, down the road without seeing it. How did uh, your parents handle you the year you didn't make it? Because there are those, especially more so today, who would try to intervene on your behalf and try and get you on the team when you got cut and didn't make it. What was the message to you? Um. I mean, it's fine. I don't mind. I was kind of more of a pudgy kid back in the day, too. Um, and when I was, I remember 11, I wasn't playing on this team that much. Um, and I'm going back there because I think this will best encompass it. Um, is um, I remember being 11 years old. I'm not really playing. And uh, 
I remember sitting, I mean, my parents were crying because I'm not playing on this team, right? Like, it's just like probably 1045 at night. And um, my, uh, my, I'm sitting there and I'm, I, I want my parents to do something. I don't know what it is, right? They have to do something because I can't, you know, I, I, what can I do, right? No, I'm, and I'm just not playing and I'm not happy. And basically my mom was, uh, my dad's there. My, my dad didn't really say anything, but my mom goes like, well, if you don't like it, like we'll take you off the team and you can go play rec ball. And she's, I was like, I'm like, you know, taken aback. I can remember this like vividly. And I'm like, what? And she's like, well, if you don't like it, you can play rec ball or you can get better. Like you need to get stronger. Like you need to do certain things to get better. And I mean, I'm pretty sure I stormed out of that room, probably slammed the door as hard as an 11 year old could. Um, uh, and honestly, I don't blame myself, but at the same time, it's really something that, I, I would say I, I've lived my my life by pretty much from that moment forward where I didn't look at my parents and say, what are you going to do? I kind of just was like, even if it, even if it was BS, right. And it's political. It's like, okay, well, well how are you going to fix it? Like, what are you going to do? Like, if you're that much better, there won't, this won't, this wouldn't happen. There certainly are a lot of parents today in this helicopter world that would take it upon themselves to call the coach or the manager or the convener or whatever it is and say, you got to get my kid back on that team. You know, good on, good on your parents for giving you back the conch and saying, you want to make that team. It's on you to improve yourself. I actually think, and that was at 11. Now flash forward to when it happened at, when I really wasn't playing at 14 and then it, I didn't make the number one team at 15. I actually believe my dad uh, was one of the like on the board of directors for East Cobb and that even happened yeah and I, I mean he technically I guess could have voiced his opinion to some regard um and and in and and the best way possible he didn't um and it you know let me carve my own path I guess you could say all right so off you go to Clemson it's got to be an incredible experience I mean I don't care what era you're going off to a big university you're playing college ball. No, it's not football, but who cares? You're still playing at a real college. You're playing baseball. What happens? Uh, freshman year, I'm not playing again. Uh, there's <laughs> a sophomore and junior catcher. Um, and, uh, you know, I I went to our head coach, Jack Leggett, and um, I think I had two conversations with them um, and was just, I was frustrated, but also like, why am I not playing? Like, I don't understand. Like I'm better, like I'm not being mean or, you know, but I'm, I'm better than these guys. Like I want an opportunity and um, I hadn't had one. And I think it was like three fourths of the way through the season. And mind you, the entire time, like I'd go back to like the cages in the back, like before and after practice, like work on blocking balls off machine, throwing like damn 95 miles an hour, like footwork, receiving, you name it. Like I would always try to be doing something. And, you know, at that time, when I looked at it, I always thought like I wanted somebody to come in and see what I was doing, but I couldn't be happier that nobody did come in there because it was just about me. It was about me getting better and me, me being ready for the moment. Um, so I get my moment. Um, and could not have played worse, actually, against Furman. Um, and uh, unfortunately, they don't have a baseball team anymore. But I, th- I can blocking. I love basically defense is what I love. And um, I bet you I had, I had to have a couple of pass balls. Um, I bet you I made an error. I had to make an error too. 
Um, and I don't think I got a hit. I probably struck out twice. Who knows? Uh, but it wasn't good. And um, I'm like, well, I just blew it. So I could think, right? Like I just blew that. And I didn't change anything because like I knew I just blew an opportunity. I wasn't like I was like sitting on my thumbs throughout the whole year and riding, you know, riding the bench and not doing anything, trying to be ready. I just missed an opportunity and which also drove me even harder and to get right back in it and just go. Like I gotta, I gotta keep doing like get better still. And then we're at the ACC tournament. This is 2010. I mean, we're top, we're top three in the country the whole year, pretty much, or top five. We were really good. We had six guys on that team, including myself, make it to the big leagues playing on the field at any time and we were playing at george against georgia tech we're zero and three in the acc tournament we're on the bus and uh jack jack leggett coach leggett gets up there and always said the lineup before the game and i'm not i'm like not paying attention but i'm batting eighth or something and i'm like holy shit, you know <laughs> I, the, oh my like here we go right like i don't even have time to tell my parents which is a good thing um and uh, my dad said he was actually at an airport and the ACC tournament was on TV. And he was like, wait, is he, are you catching? Like, you didn't even say anything. He saw it there. Um, but it was awesome because I got to play against George Tech, a school that really didn't recruit me until it was too late. And uh, I know I, I went three for four. Um, I threw out a couple runners. It was an awesome game. Uh, we don't get a host or regional because we performed so poorly in the ACC tournament. We were, we were like seventh or eighth at the time in the country. And um we're going to play at Auburn at the regional and I'm starting. And so that was awesome. So I started every game after that for the most part. I mean, all the way through, we went to Omaha that year, started every game in Omaha and I had started one game in the regular season. Um, so to me, what you're doing when nobody's watching is, is, is a big deal and, you know, control what you can, but um, you got to be able to, to try to make sometimes, chicken salad as they say out of chicken shit and, and right. that's really what it is about so you make it how many years were you did you play college ball three and you then get drafted by the nationals drafted i was in, drafted in the fifth round um showed up to rookie ball um in auburn new york not auburn alabama auburn new york uh wedge between syracuse and rochester um and A booming uh, metropolis that it is yeah, centered around a maximum security prison. Um, nice. But um, that's true. Um, great brewery there, Prison City Brew Pub, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's really good, actually. Um, but um, hence the name, Prison City. But um, they uh, were there. Um, you're like a fish out of water. I met uh, somebody who uh, I've held on to a lot of the lessons I learned from him, Bobby Henley. Um, he was a, the catching coordinator uh, as well as the uh, minor league coordinator um, and ended up being the third base uh, coach for the big leagues big league team for like six, seven years. He was awesome. Um, but um, uh, played there. And then I was going to go play on the Dutch uh, national team for uh, the world baseball classic and uh, getting ready for that. I just was long tossing and felt a lightning bolt in my arm, uh, tore my UCL off my elbow, just completely detached. it. So I had to get Tommy John um, that year. I ended up uh, meeting a good friend, um, somebody who was, it was like, Timing again, it was it was odd, right? Like, you know, I'd spent my whole life down in the South, essentially. Like, my dad's from the Netherlands, my mom's from Chicago, but grew up in East Cobb, went to school two hours away, and um, now I'm stuck in Florida. Um, but my roommate is a guy who had Tommy John. It was our first-round pick the year before, Lucas Giolito from uh, Santa Monica. And um, that was great. He's 18, I'm 22. 
and um, we stayed in, I think, room 311 in the La Quinta for seven months straight. Um, and uh, it was a good thing that was so-called diversified my outlook on some things. And um, Lucas and I became extremely close friends. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they liked it because they thought I was helping him, but people didn't realize how much he was actually helping me simultaneously. Um, and we did that and then went to A-ball and had a great year, went to the Fall League out of low A, which was awesome, which the Fall League is like where you want to go um, if you're a prospect. Um, then he had high A, missed half the year, had a back concussion. This is – they basically banned running the catcher over in the first game of the year. Some guy ran me over, and I just battled some nagging concussion, and then I got hit hard, and then it just took me out of the season. Um, but went back to the Fall League again that year, went to double A, was put on the roster. Um, then in uh, had a bad year trying to do what other people wanted me to do instead of being myself. And then um, got taken off the roster in 17. Um, nobody picked me up. Uh, somebody got hurt at the halfway through 17 at AAA, got called up there, had a great year uh, for half that season. And then um, 18, they uh, called me back up. And then 19, um, there was a – they basically put me in AA because it was close – there was no longer, they were no longer in Syracuse. They moved into Fresno. So all the guys in the roster were in double A. Um, I played once a week, um, broke my hand like the second week of the season. Um, and I was battling an internal, uh, I call it a, a personal injury that had happened in 2017, actually. Um, and uh, it was a hearing loss incident. And then um, after 19, I had to get some major surgeries in my ear and uh, pretty much forced my hand and I don't sit still. Uh, and so, uh, being 29 and going back for a double A catching job uh, as a backup didn't really sound uh, appealing, uh, especially with what I've been able to do. And I knew what it would take. And uh, to be honest, I had, there was balance issues. There's a lot of things going on. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Um, and I, I didn't want to sit there and it wasn't about finding out, but I found myself doing this uh, about six months in when I was done. All right, so let's go back for a second because you 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 jumped over the sexy part that they're going to make the Hollywood movie on, and that is you're you're toiling away in the minor leagues, and the phone rings or somebody calls you and says you're going up to the big leagues, and we've all seen it in the movies. So give us the story. How how did you get notified that you're? Mine's going not up sexy the at all, actually. Um, <laughs> the first time I got called up in 2016 was because Wilson Ramos tore his ACL the last. Okay. Year and I was basically a body they called up. That was on the only guy that was not called up, me and one other person. Um, I was there for a week. Dusty Baker was the manager. Um, Dusty was kind enough to give me an at bat. Um, I walked. My dad's like, You got a good, like, that was a hang good on, eye. hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm gonna be the rude host and interrupt. Forget that. Like, stop it for a second. You get a phone call that you're going up. You're, you're you have to be a kid in the candy store. You're going up to the major leagues. I don't care what it is. You're on a contract. You're making big league money. You're you're walking into the stadium as a player on a major league team. That has to be incredible. It has to be. Well, so it didn't feel like that because I was but the really thing I was the only guy not called up on the 40-man roster when they extended. And so I was the only person at home. And they finally did call you. Yeah, after somebody broke their damn leg, right? What? So okay, Wait. and um, and so 
I didn't go home after that season and take time off like normal. Like I went home and went straight to working out to fix it, like try to fix everything and yeah, find yeah. myself again right away. Yeah, I got it. And um, basically in my head, although I was there for the week and I got the one AB there, I walked, which don't get me wrong. It's, I was, I was, I actually goes better for my parents. But hang on, was, stop for a second. When you finally get called up, irrespective of how pissed off you were that you hadn't been called up, you're now called up. What was it like walking into that locker room for the first time? It had to be incredible. It was, it was, it was awesome. I mean, it's cool. It really is cool. I mean, you, it's a different feel. It's a different vibe. It's actually, thank you. It's, it's everything you want it to baseball to be put it that way. Uh, but the thing was like in my head, like I didn't count it. Like, well, I'm I counting think, it. I know, but I didn't <laughs> think I, I, I always get told that, but like, I didn't count it. And the fact that I didn't count it, I actually think was great because you felt like I you got, didn't earn it. Yeah. I was like, no, I didn't earn it. Like, and in 17, I was battling that, the, the internal injury that I like the, the personal injury that I had where I lost my hearing in my right ear. I had a bunch of balance issues going on. I got taken off the roster about two weeks left in spring training. Got told by our assistant GM and a bunch of other staff, like, you're not a big leaguer. You're playing for 29 other teams. You're going to double A and you're going to be a backup. Like, life changed like that, like that quickly. And I remember I was pissed. I didn't like, I didn't like, you know, portray it like that. I was like, all I remember saying to them was, the one, the one guy wouldn't stop in the damn office. Like, yo, I get it. Like, chill. Like, I mean, what do you want me to do? Like, freak out? Like, I'm not, right. um, you're about to make me if you keep going. But um, uh, you kind of just, crushed a lot of things going on that I've worked for my whole life. And, um, but I was like, just give me a week and I'll be fine. Like type deal. Like I'll be back to myself. Like you got to give yeah. me like, at least like to be back. Like I'm out there, but I'm not going to be myself. And so went to double a, and I mean, all I could think was like, this is miserable. Like I'm kind of miserable too, from this whole hearing loss incident. And um, then lo and behold, I got, I did get a call like that. The guy in triple a was hurt. Um, he was just playing bad, I think, um, and said he was hurt. But uh, they called me up there, and I showed up, and I met one of the greatest managers I've ever played with in my life was Randy Knorr. Um, He's like, hey, Spence, like, good to see you. Like, yo, you're playing today. I'm like, yo, what's up? Like, I'm fired up again, right? Like, here we go. Right. Um, and he made, it, he made it a lot of fun. And um, I had a blast with that team, uh, and I played well. Um, and even while I was there, I got called up. Not really, but I did. Um, it was technically called illegal. It doesn't matter now. It's been over how many years. I don't really care either. I could have said something and filed a grievance, but I didn't. It was, I got called up to go to St. Louis. They thought one of the catchers was hurt and I wasn't on the roster. And so technically you're not allowed to fly me there to St. Louis unless I'm on the roster. And I sat in the back where the golden tees were the entire time in case they needed me. They didn't. I flew home with the team to DC in case they needed me for the next day. And they said, we don't need you. Here's, here's your plan to get back to Syracuse. So then I fly back to Syracuse. Don't get called up about two days left in the year. They're like, Hey, you're not going to get, we're not going to put you on the roster at the end of the year. We're going to take our chances in the rule five draft. Okay. Um, I ended up breaking my foot the second day anyways, the, the, like the, after that meeting, which was what irony and a foul tip uh, when I was catching. And then um, 
18 rolls around, I'm still gung ho. Um, and like, I can get there. Like, I know I can get, like, I can, if I see a light at the end of the tunnel, I can't stop. And made it to the last day of camp. And then, um, four or five weeks into the season and triple A with Syracuse, Randy called me in his office and he's like, Hey, they want you in Arizona and I'm not on the roster. And I'm going like, don't believe it until I have a, an effing uniform on my back. <laughs> Period. That that moment to me when I had the uniform on my back and I stepped out and there at, at the field in Arizona and Phoenix, that that to me was like that moment. Okay. So what was like, it like? That moment was like surreal. Okay. Like that was like, hey, you earned this, like type okay. moment. And so the other moment I remember really vividly, I don't like have like a bunch of pictures in my head, but I remember walking down from the bullpen and catch, starting my first game. I was actually catching what who's now a good friend. He lives here in Atlanta, Tanner Rourke. Um, I was so gassed up um, and fired up. I mean, I'm throwing missiles back to Tanner between you know every pitch. Um, what's his name? Cody Bellinger leaned over when I was throwing the ball back lefty, and I hit him in the side of the head. Like it was going to hit Tanner in the chest. I was on the front of intentional talk for two years straight in the opening credits um, <laughs> as the blooper, um, and. From there, I remember hitting my first home run. I was off one of my buddies who was a groomsman, um, and he got traded to the Phillies. And um, That's Nick remember, Pavetta, right? Yeah, Nick Pavetta, fellow Canadian from Vancouver. Yeah. Um, and uh, the last thing I remember was um, the last time I actually was in a big league dugout. But I like like call it like the picture, like piece in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, – to me, getting that that call up in Arizona, that was that was it. Like that's so, that was the moment. So you're a catcher in the major leagues. This is one of the questions I've always had. How much you know? You see it in the movies, Major League, Bull Durham, those types of movies. How much banter is there between the catcher and the batter in at bats? Is there a lot of trash talk? No. Um... No, there's more chirping going on from a dugout than anything else. Um, it's not like hockey. Um, it's uh, no, there's not that much banter going back and forth. I mean, if somebody like gets like ridiculous, of course you're going to say something or vice versa. But there's not that much banter there. I mean, the best movie to portray baseball, hands down, aside from the fact like nobody's going to tell you what a pitch is coming, like that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but uh, is definitely Bull Durham. I mean, right. every archetype on that team still exists today. Like it is incredible. Like you have your Crash Davis, the old guy, right? You got um, who's the veteran who's done it and seen it. You got the young guy who's got got a bunch of money who's like a, a wet, you know, a lost puppy dog or baby giraffe, and then you know you got. You just got every archetype that's in there, and it's uh, that's to me the best representation of what baseball actually is. So you go through a personal—I don't know if tragedy is the right word—but you certainly go through something that rocked your world. Personal health issue. Um, you've come out through it. Yeah. Uh, we're having this discussion now. You can hear me. I can hear you. I've met you face to face. Yeah, I got um, bone conducting headphones on, so I can hear you on both sides. It's cool. So you are healthy. We are happy to report. Yeah. And as I understand it, A, you go back to school. 
And and you finished your degree? Yeah, I had 32 hours left. Um, and um, didn't know what I was going to do. But after I had to get the, uh, some major ear surgeries, I signed up for classes. Um, just figured instead of me sitting around, I might as well do something. Um, I kind of owed it to a lot of people, I think, too, including myself. Um, and uh, went back just to finish up and see kind of where things went. And um, yeah, it was uh, laying in bed and this idea hit me that I had that I had back in college, which is now what I'm doing now, which is pollen. And um, I couldn't shake it. And uh, the funny thing is, Jonah, is like when I when I look back like at anything that I do, and I think this will be like this for the rest of my life is like um, the best time I have in life is the unknown. If I don't know what's going like freshman year of college, best time. Rookie ball, best time. A ball, best time. Like all that was the best time because like I just came off of my T the Tommy John. I had no idea what was going to happen. I just signed up for minor league, you know, signed a contract. I don't know what's going to happen. You go to college, I don't know what's going to happen. And I feel like I I find myself in those situations because I think they're they're there's something that just pulls me into them. It's just I think a lot of my skill set is just I love it. If I feel like I'm, I'm mastering something like to a point to where I'm going, like, I already know what's going to happen. That's, that's not boring. I mean, that's not fun. That's just boring for me. Right. So, okay. So let's try and dumb down the idea of pollen. We live in a world now. of This is what brought us together at Shop Talk. So we live in a world today of e-commerce. Apparently people have heard of this, that they buy things on the internet Thankfully, Al Gore invented it. Um, and Zappos, um, Zappos is the one that kind of changed the world, in my opinion, for returns. Yeah. And that they made bilateral returns super easy, meaning you can buy, you no longer have to worry about what size shoe I buy online because I can buy the same shoe in three or four sizes recognizing that three of the four aren't going to fit, but that's not a big deal because I can return the three that don't fit for free. They'll ship them to me for free and I can ship them back to them for free. So no big deal. You see chaos and in chaos and opportunity. Tell me the rest. Yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe I should write your pitch deck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the um, In short, what we, what Pollen is, Pollen is a platform. Um, and it's a platform that helps retailers with the returns by reducing their costs, um, as well as reducing the friction when it uh, the friction on the buying front um, to encourage consumers to buy more instead of abandoned items and carts. Pollen enables return pickups as well as labelless returns to any major shipper in the United United States. Um, the uniqueness about how we pick returns up is that we can do it for less than the cost of that label um, with what our platform uh, allows us to do. Um, in other words, as a consumer, if you're listening, if you had a, uh, if you were making a return and you saw a window pop up that said schedule your date and time for a pickup, that would be pollen powering it. Uh, and the retailer is actually saving a lot of money while selling more products simultaneously. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, I found myself just, I looked, somebody mentioned returns to me because Pollen was not about returns. It wasn't the name. I didn't have a name for it either, but Pollen was not returns necessarily to start. It was, it was, it was an idea that I had in college more based off delivery. Um, and 
I met somebody at FedEx when I made my LinkedIn for the first time in 2020. Um, and uh, I just was reaching out to some random people because somebody said, do it. Why not? And I was like, well, I got nothing to lose. So uh, I started doing it. I, I met this gentleman from FedEx, a former VP there, and uh, he was willing to talk to me. And he's like, you know, Spencer, I like this delivery idea, but like, you should actually really look into return space. And that's what like really where the uh, the snowball effect hit because I saw this massive number with no basis behind it. The same way that I looked at the game of baseball, of you know, okay, five hundred billion dollars being lost. What does that mean to me? Just a lot of it's just a big number. What's like what is that make? What makes up that five hundred billion dollars? And when somebody was like, "Well, how does that relate to baseball?" It's like, well. When I'm catching and let's say Ben Zobris was hitting 330 on a fastball inside, like I don't, I know what that means, but like I don't know what that means. Like, is this off of starters? Is this mid relievers? Uh, is this, you know, how, why is it so high? Like, what's the difference off closers? What's runners in scoring position, day games, night games? They're the Cubs, they play a ton during the day. Like, what's actually happening? How many outs are there? And that to me is what I really like diving into. And kind of uncovering and peeling back the layers to things to uh, really bring a solution, not a Band-Aid to a problem. Uh, and if you can bring a solution, I think you, you're you able to create a domino effect that benefits a lot more things. And there's an environmental component to it as well, correct? Yeah. Um, Strictly, strictly speaking, like directly impacting scope three, um, if anybody's familiar with that. So like, like what uh, scope three initiatives would be the indirect byproduct of a retailer doing business online. So they have to report on, for example, UPS and FedEx, uh, scope three on the delivery would be what's the emissions off of that truck. Now, scope three for return is the same concept. What's the emissions off that truck, that plane, that, that container of your products sitting inside of that wall gets back to the warehouse or for PL that you're partnered with. And with how we do this, we have no, it's all, it's all tech enabled, but you're not going to put two pairs of shoes from uh, a, a shoe, a shoe brand and, and uh, one pair of shoes in a box to ship back. You're going to put four pairs of shoes in a box to ship back. And so now the retailer can report on one, one box with four shoes instead of four boxes with four shoes. Um, so there's a there's a big impact there and something that is actually quantifiable even from a packaging perspective of reducing the packaging. So you can all see how this was interesting to me. You've got a retired major league baseball catcher up to his neck in e-commerce returns. It's just fascinating. And well, yeah. You know, I'm cutting you off, but like, I didn't like, so you talk about sustainability. Like I was afraid I called it the S word when I started, <laughs> I was like, I can't say this word. Like it's too buzzwordy. Like even 20, like it's been buzzwordy since day one. And I'm like, I need to have a under, like at least a, an under, like the, some kind of understanding of what the hell I'm talking about. And I know definitely enough to be dangerous. I mean, I met the former chief sustainability officer at UPS. She lived right down the road from me. It was awesome. And I just started leaning in heavily and was like, do you have anything I should read? Like, what should I look at here? Like, what is this? Like, help me understand this. And I had a friend that played at Clemson. He was the bullpen catcher, Marcus Curry. He's with a major, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, like a, not apparel, but like a makeup, one of the, uh, like a Sephora type company. Um, and he's, 
somebody who leads a lot of their sustainable initiatives. And I would start talking to him and um, it's about having not only the understanding, but if I have the understanding, then I can talk the talk and, and back it um, and, and go from there. So as you look back at your baseball career and the experience and listening to you, ups and downs, highs and lows, sounds like it certainly helped create the character that you are today. It sounds like you subscribe to a lot of what I do, which is one door closes so the next door can open and everything happens for a reason. You have kids. Yeah. If your kids wanted to go down the path of professional sports or with an eye towards it, would you embrace that for them? Absolutely. Um, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, I would say the only thing I joke with my wife, but I'm off, part of me is actually serious when I joke is, um, you know, our, we have one son um, and our second's going to be here in a month. Um, uh, another boy, um, our son's two and a half Swin, And um, I always joke with my wife. I was like, he's not learning like Spanish or French. If he's learning a foreign language, it's going to be like, you know, a plus, you know, a plus plus and like react native. And he's going to learn how to code. Right. Like that's the language that he's going to be learning. Right. Um, but to me, it's uh, sports taught me, um, which I think the words used too loosely overall, uh, passion. Um, passion is not the, like, to be passionate about baseball. Of course, I'm passionate about baseball, but really my passions are not like running the bases. It's not like it's, it's everything that that's behind all of that. Like what's everything that goes into it, everything that that's a part of it. That's the passions for for me um which allowed me to um be more i guess than a baseball player or what however i wanted to like you know identify myself as or or put myself in whatever kind of bucket like i don't even like saying i'm an entrepreneur because i feel like it's the same thing of saying when i was a baseball player when it was all said and done like well yeah i mean i'm i'm doing what an entrepreneur would do but like that's not me i'm just you don't want to be I'm defined just, by a label yeah it's just it's not Right. I don't, it doesn't feel right. It's never felt right. Are you a baseball fan? Yeah. I, I, my, my, my heart rate still goes up when I watch stuff. I want, I love, I think it's a, it's, a, it's the most misunderstood game in today's uh, society. I don't Tell think. Me. Yeah. Um, Tell me more. There's, there's so much strategy going on. Um, for example, uh, do I think games have taken too long? Absolutely. Um, you can't argue that, but the one thing that was beautiful about baseball is there's no time. Um, I think there's a way to enforce that, which they've gotten away from self-enforcing. Uh, I'm not somebody who says like, let's go inflict pain and hit somebody on purpose, but like there is a reason why that happens. Um, and not to mention, by the way, this is a game. Like you are playing a game. And if you hit somebody, for example, as a pitcher, on, let's say, on purpose or maybe an accident because you're trying to throw inside as a result the game can change because of how people are portraying themselves when they walk into the box and this is a game and so i love the fact that it is a game i think it's this it's a game that people i don't think appreciate because who wants to watch 162 baseball games but we live in an instant society where i could play video games with somebody across the world if i wanted to i can tell you the launch angle in in, in damn Germany, 
um, with, and where the pitch was located, the speed on an app, right? Like we want everything done so much faster and nobody understands what 162 means to put that together, to go win is that's a lot. Like what, what's happening there in my opinion is like what happens in one race in formula one every, every week or every other week, that's the same strategy that's happening for 162 games being played out. So you're not a fan of the the pitch clock, is what I'm hearing. I'm not, not really, but I don't mind it because I think it's doing good for the game right now. Um, I don't think it's going to solve the problems baseball has. I don't think it's four hour baseball games because we all watch five hour playoff games and nobody gives you know cares. But I think the problem baseball has is nobody understands 162 or, or nobody under nobody appreciates it. Um, but they won't give that up because there's revenue tied to 162. I don't think they should give it up. I think you should adjust how the game is uh, seasons are played out as to what it looks like. So if I have halves, let's say I call I have halves. I still have wild cards, but if I have first half winners, second half winners, and wild cards, so after the first half, 81 games, it restarts zero oh and zero record. You have your first half winner. And now you have your going to the second half. So a team that's hurt, let's say they have a couple of veterans banged up or whatever might be going on. Well, they're not out of it because they're 30, 40 games back. They could be in it now in the second half, right? They're still they're playing for them. Not to mention as a fan, I'm not watching the Orioles play for the last couple of years going, why would I go to a baseball game when we're 60 games back, but you know, with 100 games into the season, there's no point of going. Now I'm like, hey, why aren't we winning? Like, we should go make moves. We should go do certain things. So I actually look at that as like a real solution to help solve the game. There's more emphasis on each on the games. There's more money being spent on the players. There's more money being made by the by the owners because more people show up and care. And you actually keep the art of playing 162, but just in a different format while not losing in sight like what baseball is. Has anyone ever proposed that? No, which is funny. You actually mentioned it. So I was actually thinking of going to law school before I was doing <laughs> uh, uh, Holland because uh, I, I was like, I kind of, I would part, like, I'm part, I really, it intrigues me. Um, and I always, I guess I feel like law school is not going anywhere, but Holland could. Right. Um, and who knows? Um, but that to me would be to help solve baseball, which I would say what I'm doing is actually made it very clear of how I look at the game. Um, like what kind of problems there are. I look at it like if you had to name one problem, like you start any any anything, unless like I've gotten to this point, like if you had to name one problem, like what's the underlying problem for baseball? People would be like, guys don't make enough. There's all these answers to it. I'm like, well, actually, it's just the owners don't compete. Lack of competitive balance. Why, why would I compete as if I was the Pirates? I get the first pick. I had a $44 million payroll in 2020. I made $50 million in revenue share. I was in the black before the season started. And the Yankees and the teams in the Red Sox and all these teams that are finishing high with the most revenue who share, share their 20% down with the bottom 20%. They go, I'll share it because they suck. It's guaranteed right. win for us. <laughs> like it's, it's that premise happens. And I know it's hard for people to imagine that people aren't competing it's not the players that aren't competing. It's just they're not incentivized to put the greatest team they could actually put out on that field at all times. That's right. 
And not everybody can be the Tampa Bay Rays and have a low payroll and do what they do. Right. It's funny. Two things. One, the Blue Jays played last night. My son and I were watching. I think it's the the game ended after the game was done in two hours and three minutes or something. Apparently, it's the first time they've played a game in under two hours and five minutes since 2015, which is shocking. Um, yeah. As a TV watcher, like five stars. Yeah. But to me, I love going to a baseball game outside. I don't like going inside to domes. Even like uh, to me, th- there is something about going outside to a baseball stadium with a with a roof open or in an open air environment with a buddy or buddies and not being on your phone and just the game becomes secondary. And there's very few places you can do that. And to me, in that environment, the time doesn't matter. I don't care how long the game lasts. I just, I guess you could say, I would actually be a bigger fan if they said there's a three, there is a, there is a two, two, 210 minute clock on a game at three and a half hours or nine innings. Whichever one finished first. And if you're in a tie, the clock's still still there. And then I know nobody likes a tie. Well, then so be it. So be it. Like there's actually there would be it's like I don't know the rules of cricket, like so to speak, but there's art to that time of how you manage that time of that game as well. Right. Like, are you really going to go make that pitching change this often? Right. Like, are you really going to go do this? Like, is this really what you think should be happening? Like, do you want to get to a certain point faster? So you're you're trying to, you know, there's so many different strategies that could be unlocked if there was a dwindling of time rather than a time in this specific moment. And I mean, to, the scary thing is for me, and now this is now that I'm going on my tangent here with this is um, <laughs> I is, brought um, you. It's not a tangent. Hey, is the one sad thing I think about what's happening is, and I guess why I feel so strongly about it is, I don't the art of catching will be gone in five years. I think it's going to be gone in five to eight years. Catchers aren't even calling their own games. Some of these guys right now, like they have, they have earpieces in and then they have a remote on their, their, their shin guard because they're afraid somebody's stealing signs. And I'm going, nobody's stealing signs because the scores look the damn same as before. And by the way, the Astros are not the only team probably stealing signs. I, I guarantee you that. And, so what, like, what are we doing here? So now you have somebody behind the field, like behind the plate, who's not even thinking anymore. They're actually just a talent to a certain extent. You have the automatic strike zone coming into play in, in the minor leagues and they're testing it out, which is BS in my opinion, because you now lose the element of human error. And that's a big factor in all of sports. It makes That's what makes it exciting, like is that element. And... I, when you do that, now you don't have a catcher. You just have a guy back there who can hit and throw because you don't need him to receive. Why do you need him to receive? He doesn't have to call it. He's just catching the ball. The, the, you know, something would call strikes for him. So, and I think with what's going on in baseball, like when you start reviewing out plays like they've been doing, it's got, at first, what was it? What was it? 2015, they started doing like home runs and foul balls. Wasn't it like it was something yeah. like that? Like, and it had, the ball had to be past the bag in order to even appeal it. Okay. Yeah. To me, that was like basketball, like uh, doing replay for somebody stepping out of bounds or the clock at the end of a game to make sure it's right. When you start doing outs 
and you start doing all these pitch clock things and you start doing like, that's like somebody going flag. I want to review that foul in my basketball game. Like what, like, what are we doing? Well, like, the, here's, here's the answer. In my opinion, the problem is technology has gotten so good and these things have gotten so good that the power to the fan is so strong that the leagues look stupid. So the fan at home, the fan in the arena can see what's going on. And we've got replays up the yin yang and on Twitter and TikTok, like you and I grew up watching sports center and, and highlight shows. You don't need that anymore because it's old news. Watch it. Well, it's all, it's, it's, well, it's all, but it's old news, right? Like yeah. something big happens. It's on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, what have you, within a fraction of a second, and everyone has an opinion. So if they blow it, it is so obvious. And now with those new camera angles, you got 16 different angles, slow-mo, super slow-mo, upside down, inside out, right? So what's happened is once you have that technology, they look so stupid when they get it wrong that the leagues are like, we just can't, we can't continue to be made to look so stupid. I think that's the issue. So either yeah. you turn off, either you like you dumb down the technology, right? And you go back to the, the the poor technology that we had, or you just accept the fact that there's humans, there's some stakes, one or the other. I think if you can just accept the fact that it's like the game, like my point being like, like, like imagine like back in the day, like I grew up watching the Braves being from Atlanta. Like Bobby Cox, like what has the record for the most thrown out, like most thrown out most like in a season or in as a manager as a career, but like who knows you know, how it, many games he influenced. But you know how much money? I mean, ultimately that's what it is, right? Isn't it? It's about gambling. I mean, there's so oh, much, yeah. There's so oh, yeah. much money being gambled right now that if they don't get it right, think about it. But it technically though, I go like Let's say you can't appeal an out at first base. Technically, it is right, whatever the umpire said. I know, but when the whole world, when 3 billion people are watching, you walk into a Vegas casino now, there's, sc there's screens everywhere, right? Like, anyways. Oh, no, know. I get it. I mean, I guess I just... I'm, like, not, argue, I'm, not, I'm not arguing against you. Oh, and by the way, I'm not like purist, like with that stuff. I'm like, that's out the window. I mean, you got iPads in there and now, I mean, you name it. Like when you see a guy arguing, like from the dugout balls and strikes, it's because right. he walked in the tunnel, went down that's there. Right. And I could see every single pitch. Like I could do that. And they like, right. you can do that every single pitch. Like they even have a, a stat on what your batting average should be based right. off of your exit below. They, when Apple TV does the games, they're giving a hit probability when a guy comes up to bat. Like, what's the probability of this guy hitting? And, and with every pitch, the probability goes down or up. I, I mean, the statistics are everywhere, right? So you're actually playing into something that I'm a firm believer in, by the way. And this is, again, I guess, segueing into, like, how do I find myself here? And you brought up sustainability. And for me, like, I think great environmental impact solutions are things that you, especially in today's world, are things that you can quantify. Because like as we're talking about in sports, if I quantify something, I can monetize it. And that's actually how I look at a lot like what we're doing with, for example, Paula. And like 
How, what can I quantify? Like data is quantification of something, which means you can monetize it. And the same thing is, is applicable to, to baseball. Like they will quantify the hell out of every single thing that you do in order to pay you as little money or as much money as they want you to. It's all about and, ROI. And so if they can quantify it, they monetize it or for your benefit or not. So like right. you'll never see guys like in baseball wear like a whoop band for their heart monitor. Like over your dead body, the players union will let that happen. Why does Rory McIlroy wear it? Because he's his own entity. That's right. And he probably invested $10 million into whoop band. So he's making money off it regardless and will happily share it. But somebody who gets called up or a veteran or somebody on the fringe is not going to wear it because their heart rate goes to 140 during a big at bat. And they go, well, because it's heart rate. Like it, it just won't happen. Right. No, so, but it, it's, 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 it is, I do love the game and I do, I, I love it. Like I really do love it. Well, we will have you back on as we get closer to the playoffs and there are um, controversial topics to discuss because I'm sure there will be those. And we will have differing opinions for sure. That's the whole point. Exactly. Everybody agrees. It wouldn't be fun. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, it was fortuitous for us to meet in Vegas a couple months ago. Uh, I enjoyed our time together. We look forward to seeing Paulin continued trajectory upwards towards uh, the New York Stock Exchange and beyond. For those of you out there, you can find them online. As you're returning your items, make sure you click the box that says book your returns through pollen. Spencer, thank you so much for doing this. We'll see you next time in the press row. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of In the Press Row. As always, if you want to appear or advertise, you know how to reach me, Jonah at YYZ Sports Media or at YYZ Sports Media. Follow us or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.